Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email. From a woman who said, Hey, Carol, my husband started with a CSAC counselor at the end of June. We are a couple who have been in recovery for 21 years. My husband's CSAC counselor, who just became certified, knew that he was still acting out from day one. She didn't tell him to tell his group or me until late September. Does that sound right? No. Unfortunately, this is such a tough, tough situation that I do believe that CSAC, Certified Sexual Addiction Counselors, or people who work with sexual addiction and partner betrayal to have a no-secrets policy. If you get on my website, www.sexhelpwithcarolthecoach, you will clearly see in my paperwork that I say, if I'm working with you and I'm working with your husband or I'm working with your coupleship, I will not hold a secret. Now, what does that mean? That means that I'm not going to let you know what he's doing, but I'm going to encourage him or her, depending on who is keeping the secret, to share that information with the spouse. You know, sexual addiction requires honesty. And if I hold a secret with one of my people, be the addict or the partner, I'm colluding with them. Now, I guess that it may take one or two sessions to get them to be honest, but I definitely would not allow them to hold the secret. I would end up, if I can't make anybody do anything, but if they absolutely refuse to share that information, 
I would say I can no longer work with you because that's how important it is. So this person will call her um, Carrie. She wanted to know that. And then later on, she texted me and said, I've got a few questions that I need to have answered. Can you help? So I emailed her back because texting is not HIPAA compliant. But I emailed her back and I said, Carrie, if you have some information that you want to ask me, why don't you call the show? Something I have available to any of my listeners. If they want to call the show and we um, set that up beforehand, I'll be happy to talk with you. Because I always say I am your own personal life coach and therapist right here. I have 600,000 open downloads a week. But I'm here for you. I am willing to help you with your issues, not doing therapy, but giving you some downright um, honest advice about what I think you should do. And I appreciate that. So I said to her, hey, why don't you send me an email and tell me what's going on? And I will either get you to a therapist or I'll answer your question, depending on how in-depth it is. Because I can't really do therapy on a radio show, but I certainly can give advice. So she said, Carol, here's what I want to know. I need certain things for my husband to feel safe. And she said, my biggest issue is, should I ask him to move out or have an in-house separation? But while I'm trying to decide that, Carrie said, I'd like him to do 90 meetings in 90 days, do the Facing the Shadow workbook every day, do a Bible study, to be honest about his slips and let me know within 24 hours, and to do a polygraph, get a sponsor, daily to a sponsor, get STD testing, get mentoring from someone who knows recovery, tell his parents, act on whatever his fellowship suggests would improve his recovery, and I know I have more, but I I think I'll stop there. That's what she said. Now, Carrie is kind of fooling herself. Carrie, this is hard stuff. And certainly, I want you to feel safe. But as I look at this list, I say to myself, Carrie, you're doing his inventory. And it's not okay for you to decide what he needs to do. So let's look at each one of these and decide what would actually make you feel safe because that is important. You need to feel safe. Um, Number one, 90 meetings in 90 days. Carrie, I can't go, go with that unless he's had a therapist who has told you both that he needs that. And if that therapist has said that, well, then that's a different issue. But it's really not up to you to be his therapist and dictate how many meetings he needs. I commonly 
recommend 90 meetings in 90 days, especially if they have addiction really, really bad. What do I mean by bad? Well, when their life's out of control and they're white-knuckling it and they're having slips and they're having relapses, or it has occurred for so long that I feel like they need intensive support prior to me putting them in an intensive program, I might ask for 90 meetings in 90 days. But that's not what will make you feel safe. What makes you feel safe is if he's working a solid program. And he gets to decide what that is. She wants him to do Facing the Shadow Workbook every day. Well, hey, I believe that's the best workbook in town to look at your own sexual addiction. But it is not up to you to dictate the recovery materials he reads. He has to figure that out himself. And if he's with a CSAT, his CSAT should be encouraging him to do that. Bible study every day. Carrie, I'm sorry, but you cannot mandate that he do anything every day. I wish that you were on the phone right now so I could ask you, what do you need to feel safe? Um, Sounds like you would like him to incorporate more spirituality in his day. That's what I believe that you need to convey to him and to see if he's willing to do what it would take to make you feel better. Because when a man has come clean about his sexual addiction, he will either want to right the wrongs and to do some things that he believes will show you that he's really going to work on this, or He'll say, leave me alone, I'm doing it my own way. He says, leave me alone, I'm doing it my own way. That screams that he's really not relational and he's not interested in making you feel safe. He's interested in doing it his own way. And that is not what I expect of the sex addicts I work with that are married. You know, yes, this is a recovery issue, but it's also a relational issue. And so I would say to him, hey, you know, let's dialogue about what would make her feel better. What would make her feel like you're working on things? What would show her that you want to stay together? And if he says, this is my business, she needs to stay on her side of the street, I would say to him, you know, she has every right to expect to see some things that are showing that you're taking an honest effort at correcting this addiction. And if you aren't willing to do that, you just need to know that more than likely she'll be making some hard and tough choices about her safety and her livelihood. Not a threat, the consequence. Okay. She says, one conversation with men every day. Not a call and leave a message. Well, you know, it does help when you can see that your spouse is making fellowship calls. That's certainly what I advise. But one of the things that I really believe is that Carrie is struggling with not trusting her husband here, not seeing him work a hard enough recovery program. So what I would say to Carrie is, hey, Carrie, let's talk about you. 
What can you do to feel safe? Where can you go to get support? What can you do to protect your finances? What do you need to decide whether you're going to ask for an in-house separation or not? You know, let's talk about what it is that you want. As part of this partnership, you did not ask for this addiction and you shouldn't have to put up with it, but the truth of the matter is, if my husband had cancer, I would stay with him and I would help him through it. If my husband had addiction, I would certainly go that extra mile to see if we couldn't get through this together. Is he willing to go to couples recovery group? Is he willing to get up early and read? I wouldn't mandate it, but I'd be watching. I'd be saying, how seriously is he taking this addiction? And if he thought he could do this on his own, well, he would ask for a separation because what I know to be true and what Patrick Carnes told me a long time ago is that he has never known anybody who can combat sexual addiction on his or her own. It just isn't possible. This is a process addiction. It is a serious addiction. I don't care whether it's porn. I don't care whether it's prostitution. If they can't control it, if they can't stop, they're not going to be able to stop on their own. Now, you said get STD testing. Well, yes, he does need that STD testing, but guess what, Carrie? So do you. Don't wait on him. You get your own testing. And then don't sleep with him until he gets his. Again, that's a boundary and a consequence to keep yourself safe. Now, you want him to tell his parents. Boy, that's a toughie. I've had plenty of, plenty of women want their addicts to tell their parents. And usually we compromise and negotiate that. Why do you want him to tell his parents? You know, sometimes I have people that say, I want him to tell his parents because they think I'm being bitchy. They think I'm being controlling. They see me unhappy, and they feel sorry for him having to live with me being unhappy, and I want them to know what I'm dealing with. Well, that may mean that you need to tell his parents. I know I may have a listening audience that goes, you're going to share the secret with his parents? But yeah, I mean, if you really feel like you're being judged for that, and you want them to know, that's absolutely okay. And if you would prefer that he share that with his parents, that's great too. But you can't mandate that to happen. You see, when it comes to addiction and recovery, the person has to be motivated to do it him or herself. You can give suggestions. He can take suggestions. As I said, in all relationships, compromise and negotiation is essential, but you cannot dictate his recovery program. Now, Carrie, I'm going to tell you, tonight, I'm excited because we have Christian Hutchison on who did some research about therapy that worked. It's a special type of therapy. It's a 
it's a forward-thinking therapy, and I wanted her to come on the show so she could talk about the research, where she got the information, and what it's all about to give you all some strength, hope, and recovery. So, Christian Hutchinson, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Well, Merry Christmas, Carol. Thank you for having me on your program. Absolutely. And, you know, I had heard about this research and this um, modality for couples, and I wanted you to come on the show and to talk about it because it is forward-thinking and it is very positive, and it's how I promote therapy with addicts or non-addicts eventually down the road. So can you share a little bit with my um, listening audience and and tell us a little bit about how you got involved with this research to begin with? Yeah, yeah. I have a private practice in South Lake, Texas, and I've been working with couples struggling with sexual addictions for about 15 years. And during that time, I noticed that as couples achieve sobriety and then go into finally a full recovery, they seem to plateau in their growth. And I wanted to see what we could do to help these couples really advance into a healthy and enduring relationship after they've achieved a real recovery. And so... You had been talking to Ken Adams, correct? And you've been talking about that plateau that so many of our couples hit. When they get some good recovery under their belt, they're doing some early couples recovery work or couples therapy, and then they kind of get stagnant, do they not? That, and that's exactly right, and, and a lot of people within the ITAP symposium had noticed that, but it was specifically Dr. Ken Adams at the last symposium that called for um, uh, called to action the group that said, hey, we need to find out what we can change or how we can go about changing the narrative for these couples so that they're ready to cross that threshold of vulnerability again. And he had noticed the same plateau, and so had other clinicians that I was seeing in my own clients. Yes, and so tell us how you found out about um, solution-focused narrative therapy and um, what made you decide to use this modality with couples. Okay. Well, I chose 12 couples in my private practice to do the research. And these were couples that were in various stages of recovery, and they had all indicated that they really wanted to keep their marriage intact and that they were willing to try a different style of therapy. These couples had been receiving cognitive behavioral therapy with me, usually mostly the CARNs and the ITAP format. And as you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is looking to the causes of the behavior and changing that behavior after insight is uncovered. So in other words, it's a problem focused in the past. So with this new style, um, I had come upon a book by Dr. Linda Metcalf at Texas Wesleyan University, And she had published a book recently called Solution-Focused Narrative Therapy. In her book, she combined the techniques of solution-focused and narrative therapy. And this this style really helps the couple to look forward and to build a narrative of what they wanted their preferred future to look like. So the couples in my research were given an inventory to measure their intimacy scale score 
and then they were given four sessions of solution-focused narrative therapy, and then they were given the inventory again. And I found that they were able to achieve a higher intimacy score after the interventions of solution-focused narrative therapy, and that was by a significant amount. Now, what do you mean by significant amount? What did you notice? Okay. Well, we would see on, uh, it was 17 questions on this inventory, and they were scaled from one to five, one being never and seven being always, or five being always, and that they went up by at least two points on each of the 17 questions. So it was a significant amount statistically. Okay, and so that gave you some hope that this kind of therapy really does work with people and it moves them forward. Yes. But I also wanted to see if there was other criteria that might be influencing the couple to stay together, even if their intimacy score didn't uh, go up. And I, I didn't know how the research would come out, but I wanted to measure everything at one time. So I measured the length of marriage, the number of the children, if the children were still living at home or dependent upon them. I measured the income of the addict, the income of the partner. I just wanted to see if there was truly the intervention that was causing these couples to stay together or if it was for some other reason. Okay, and so what did you find out? Well, the 12 couples that I had in the research gave me a really nice spectrum to research. The couples ranged in age from 24 to 70 years old. They had been married from 2 to 37 years. They were between $37,000 to $500,000 annual income for the household. And the range of the length and time of marriage was between uh, 18 months and six years. But what I found is that it didn't matter where they were on this spectrum of independent variables. They were able to increase their intimacy score. So solution-focused narrative therapy helped the couple to begin to look at their preferred future and talk to each other about what they wanted in their future and what they wanted their marriage to look like. So that was really something because clearly so many partners and addicts are afraid to talk about the future because they either think, well, for a partner, they feel vulnerable. Like if they talk about the future, they're going to get their dreams and hopes dashed. And for addicts, they feel like they've been in the doghouse long enough that clearly they don't deserve to have dreams and a vision and future. So this really helped them to get over that plateau too, didn't it? Oh, that's exactly right. It's it's amazing what this did for the couple. The addict, of course, really liked the new style because it was no longer looking at their faults. But what I found is the most interesting is the partner taking a new stance of autonomy. I interviewed the couples after the intervention, after the fourth session, and wanted to know what really worked the best for each style of therapy, whether it be CBT or the solution-focused narrative therapy. And they both said that they liked the educational and structural components of cognitive behavior therapy. It gave them a sense of stability as they were working through the early stages of recovery. 
However, for the solution-focused narrative therapy, the addicts found hope, hope that there would be new meaning and a revitalized future that they could build together. They really enjoyed the hope. For the partner, like I said, this was the really exciting piece that I wasn't expecting, but I loved it, was that new sense of autonomy. They they commented that they had been waiting for the addict to change, and they felt like they were just in the victim stance waiting for the addict to do their work before they could do anything. And with the solution-focused narrative therapy, they were given permission to dream outside of the current situation as to what they wanted it to look like and what they wanted their relationship to be going forward. They were able to decide for themselves what was really important to them, independent of the addict. And I found a real sense of relief for the partner when they realized that they were in control of their own future. Well, absolutely. Can you give us some ideas of some of the dreams or some of the hopes that they have? So many of the couples really started to look long-term in regards to leaving a legacy for their grandchildren. And what would the grandchildren be saying that they noticed about grandma and grandpa and that they had a loving relationship and that they were kind to each other and they seemed to really connect? And leaving that legacy was just a, a bright light that both of them could focus on. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because Patrick Carnes in his um, certification program left one entire module, four days, to talking about when the addict and, and his partner, but at least the addict, gets better, it's important for them to actualize their potential by leaving a legacy. Now, that legacy may be, you know, how can I help our grandkids? Or that legacy may be, how can I be more of a sponsor for my fellowship? Or how can I run retreats? Or how can I present? Um, It really had to do with taking your life to the next level. And I don't know about you, but I, being a coach and a mental health therapist, think it's really important to eventually get to the place we're wanting to make a difference in the world. And it sounds like your research showed that your couples were willing to to make a difference in their own community and in their own coupleship and in their own families. Very much so. Some of the couples talked about visiting with their adult children and making sure that this was not a generational thing going forward, that they could break this curse and make sure that this was not something going to be left for generations to come in their own family. It was very impactful in in talking about it's not a matter of how much time you've lost to this addiction, but what you can do with the time going forward. It was very important. Yeah, can you give us another example of uh, an additional legacy that somebody wanted to make in their own lives and within their own community? I had a couple that just talked about how much they wanted to change uh, just kindness within their own home. And so in solution-focused narrative therapy, you ask them what would be a difference that you would notice if this had you know if you were starting to look forward 
and and one wife said, you know, it would be really nice if he would bring me coffee in the morning and smiled. That would change my day. That would change my outlook. It would change the way I, I look to the day. And then the addict turned to her and said, yeah, it would make a huge difference if I could make you smile again. And that couple took that uh, short snippet of what the future could look like and ran with it from the standpoint that every session that we had after that, they talked about how much more they were noticing kindness in their relationship. And I saw them just within the last week, and they talked about how their kids were saying and commenting about how kind they were and how comfortable and peaceful it was to be around them again. It was no longer picking and and being angry, that they were now filled with joy. Oh, that's really excellent. Wow. You know, you think about legacies as really making a difference in the world. That's what I said, and that's what Patrick Carnes talks about. But when you're being kind and you're bringing coffee to your mate and you're showing him or her um, that they really matter and that you're willing to do whatever it takes to make their life easier, that's a big deal, isn't it? Oh, it is huge. You know, I, I think the couples get wrapped up in making sure that they get through the this step and that step or on to the next task or or that they've done so many days without a slip or so many days without lying. But sometimes we forget just the small things that make a difference, that really have an impact on how strong each one of them can be. Absolutely. And so this had to be exciting research. It had to be exciting to see the results of this kind of, this kind of therapy. So explain to me exactly how the therapy works. Well, solution-focused uh, narrative therapy, we start the session with what are your best hopes for today's session? And usually we'll hear something along the lines of, I I don't want to be mad at this person anymore, or I don't want to get in trouble when I don't call, or they'll pick out a negative thing. And so we'll go and, and talk about what those negative things are doing that's impacting their life now. And then we go through and talk about what would they rather have, that they'd rather have joy, that they'd rather have kindness, that they'd rather um, have peace in the home. And then we talk about how do we go about doing that? What do we each need to change in order to accomplish that? Um, And then they start talking about what would that preferred future look like? And that's what I was saying with the cup of coffee or, or just the gentle, kind words. And then we start to build what would it really look like to have that preferred future and what difference would that make in their lives? And how would that get them closer to leaving the legacy that they want? It's very impactful. Well, absolutely. And so I'm curious. Obviously, um, Dr. Linda Metcalf at Texas uh, Wesleyan University had published this book. Again, it's called Solution-Focused Narrative Therapy. And so she combined the techniques of solution-focused therapy and narrative therapy. And is this a book that my listeners could pick up and read and understand? Or is it a, a book that clinicians 
need to to read to know how to provide this type of therapy? It was written for clinicians, but truly anybody can pick it up and and grasp the concepts because it's just it's just so uh, non technical. It lays it out there. What do you want your future to look like, and how can you go get it? And it's just a pleasant read. I really suggest that all of your listeners grab this book and read it. Well, very good. And so this solution-focused therapy, is that C. Johnson's work? Solution-focused therapy is uh, Steve DeShazer and Kim Sonberg is the ones that developed solution-focused. And then Michael White is who wrote uh, or developed narrative therapy. Yeah, and I followed Michael White for 35 years. I mean, he was Eric. He was an Ericksonian therapist, and he really yes. believed in um, that you can create your own reality based on how you choose to look at things. And when you choose to change the way you look at things, the things around you change. Yes, yes. I saw an interview of him, and he was working with an opioid addict who had been in the addiction for years and years. And Michael White worked with him and got that cleared up. It was just remarkable to watch the way he worked with that young man. Oh, I bet. So now you worked with these couples, you said, a period of four sessions. Mm Mm-hmm. And then was there any follow-up done with them? Was there any what? Follow-up done. Follow-up. When the uh, research was over, then most of them felt that they were ready to go and and go back to, uh, you know, working on their own or just coming in on occasion. Most of them seemed to have really gone and moved on. I think some of them are still doing their their conjoint 12-step meetings, but they seem to be doing well. Well, that's excellent. You know, I find that the more strategic the therapy and the more positive the therapy, um, the less the need for therapy because it alters their perceptions of the world and themselves and the coupleship. Now, yes. What do you think uh, the major trauma is for addicts and for their partners? What would you say is the greatest thing that they're dealing with that feels like an obstacle? Well, the the thing I did find is that after they have gone through the discovery and the disclosure and that hopefully one hit, but usually multiple hits of their relational trauma, it's just so, it's so hard on both of them and the shame that overwhelms them. And that was the one thing that I really noticed about solution-focused narrative therapy is there was no shame. It left that behind. They were able to do a demarcation of that was then and now we're going forward. So it seemed to have really helped with the shame a lot for both the partner and the addict. 
Wow. And, you know, I always say it's the addict that carries the shame, but it's the partner that carries the pain. So that betrayal trauma is so very painful. And when the addict, who already feels shame because he or she knows that that has occurred, when they see their partner in so much pain, they feel even more shame. So I get that that is probably one of the greatest issues that we as clinicians face in helping couples to get better. Now, do you work with addicts and um, their partners? If I see, I'll usually see the addict in therapy alone, um, and hopefully the partner will go see an APSAT specialist, partner therapist, and then after Mm -hmm. they're in, then either I'll refer out for the couple therapy or I'll have them come back in and do the couple therapy with me. But it is so important that all three legs of that stool are met in the very beginning so that there's sufficient support and and, uh, the the therapist can work together and, and bring together a great team approach. Yeah, so you don't just do... Um, research, you actually provide therapy too. Oh, definitely, definitely. This was the the research that I worked on for my PhD, and so I've been in private practice for 15 years and and see couples all day long, yes. Mm -hmm. What do you find is the greatest challenge for couples in recovery? Hanging on to that hope, just Mm -hmm. hoping that this wasn't so much time lost that they cannot recover. And that's why I like the the legacy concept with Dr. Karn's approach is that, yes, significant time has been lost, but we don't need to add to the loss. Let's go on the other side and gain even more. Oh, absolutely. Now, where do you practice and how can people get a hold of you if they want to find out more about this type of therapy or work with you specifically? Well, um, you can go under my website, which is C.L. Hutchison, H-U-T-C-H-E-S-O-N.com. So that stands for Christian Love Hutchison.com. And um, otherwise, you can find me on sexhelp.com or um, itap.org. Okay. Well, obviously, you have made it your mission to help couples. And I'm kind of curious, what made you decide to work with couples? You know, certainly when we got our certification, we learned how to work with addicts, and we we got information on how to do some partner work, how to do some family work. The, you know, the brunt of our certification really had to do with the attic. So what made you branch off? It truly was after I took my APSATS training and saw all of the need and how much pain and how how much sorrow there is. And that there's just got to be more and more tools to help us all get out of that pit. And so it, it was the APSATS training that really asked, you know, invited me to broaden my horizons. 
Yeah, I didn't know because so many um, counselors and coaches, they choose to work with this population because it has touched them in some way. You know, whether it was a, a parent that had some issues or their own husbands or wives that had issues. So you just decided to go into this field. Yes, to see to see partners struggling and, and in so much pain. It was like I gotta find I gotta find more. I've gotta find other resources that we can use. Mm-hmm. Well, I really admire the fact that you have done this, and I get in for our listening audience. When you decide to get a PhD, you take on a project, a research project, and you propose some theories that may or may not work, and the project or the research actually then substantiates that, and. Dr. Ken Adams is also a Ph.D., is he not? Yes, he is. Yes. And so he gave you the challenge to to uh, figure out what it was that um, could move these couples forward. And I, you know, one of the things that I really believe about couples in sexual addiction is that they're almost willing to do anything. They just need the guidance and the direction. And that's it. so, yeah, and so because this is so positive and because it talks about dreams and visions and because it focuses on not so much the betrayal anymore, they've already gone through that. They've talked about right. that. They've processed that. This is for couples, you know, you couldn't do this if they were still in crisis or they hadn't had a disclosure this is for couples that have been working for a while, right? Absolutely. And that is one thing that I was kind of noticing in my research is it's it's predicated upon the timing of when to switch from the cognitive behavior over to the solution-focused narrative therapy. And so that's going to be the next component of my research is to to see if I can find those specific demarcations of when a couple is ready to switch from looking in the past and resolving problems to looking forward and and coming up with their preferred future. Well, absolutely, and that will be an interesting study in and of itself, and I'd be interested in hearing about that because we as clinicians, we, we get the feeling when a couple is ready to move forward, but we still don't necessarily have a measurement tool. There's no way to absolutely know, okay, they're really ready. And you're saying that you might do some research that helps people figure that out. Yes. I would love to help clinicians to know not not when it's too late to move forward because then they've gotten already bogged down. And then not too soon so that we don't cause more injury to the relationship. There's that fine line there where they're ready and they're hope-filled and they're ready to go to the next spot. Okay. And so... Obviously, we both know that this can be really tough work, and at the same time, it is incredibly rewarding. My experience is that couples who've experienced sex addiction are more likely to stay together and work through it, more than, let's say, a couple that's experienced one situation of infidelity or two situations of infidelity. And I've always thought to myself that one of the reasons that may be is because on some level the partner understands that until an addict has his tools, it's not necessarily a choice. 
if an addict doesn't know what's out there, what resources are available, they'll continue to struggle, they'll white-knuckle it, and they'll fail time and time again. And I don't mean to be negative, but certainly Patrick Carnes taught us that addicts cannot combat this illness in and of itself. They have to have the many resources available. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, and one thing that he consistently says is the antidote to an addiction is community. And so we need that community of of the therapists and the 12 steps and the groups and the friends and the sponsors, and it's so important to get out of the shadows. No more secrets. Let's, let's present out there what's really going on and, and hold each other accountable. And I think you're exactly right. One or two... Uh, infidelities that's never faced has a much greater chance of not making it than a couple that's truly working against this addiction together. Well, yes, and and I would even go so far, and you mentioned APSATS, which is the partner-sensitive therapy and coaching program. I even believe that when a couple is working together and the addict learn skills um, that are helpful to the marriage, empathy, communication, reflective listening, and the, the cognitive therapy skills that you were talking about, when an addict learns those skills, he can actually help the partner to heal from the pain, which then also makes him feel better about himself. And so... Um, that is what I do. I work with the couples so that the addict can develop the skills he needs to let the partner know that even though he can't feel her pain, he knows he's responsible and he's willing to do whatever it takes to make it better. Right, right. And and so the idea that sex addiction really is an intimacy dis- disorder couldn't be more true. They, the addict just doesn't know how to be in a truly intimate relationship. Well, how do you help couples with that? Well, um, I have taken all of the training with Dr. Doug Weiss for the intimacy anorexia classes and the certification for that. And I have found that bringing it to a head and getting the gaslighting stopped can be very profound, but once again, it has to be that couple working together to get over that hurdle. Oh, that's exactly right. Now, tell our listening audience a little bit about Doug Weiss's program and intimacy anorexia. Uh, Doug Weiss has got his own uh, sexual addiction training certification, which is also very good. But uh, one of the things that he has noticed is, like I said, a sexual intimacy, not sexual, I'm sorry, intimacy anorexia. And it's where the the person will be withholding love, withholding praise, withholding connection, um, even withholding sex. Meanwhile, they're being extremely critical of the partner that it's their fault that they're not having sex or their fault that they're they're fighting all the time. So it's a lot of gaslighting going on, and, and you'll see a lot of that within sexual addiction from the standpoint that they're trying to keep the partner off balance from finding or realizing the truth. And by using gaslighting, which is a method of making sure that the other person 
doesn't believe their reality, it can keep them off balance enough that the addict won't get caught. But that only lasts for so long. Absolutely. And certainly that is one of the greatest betrayals that partners talk about. It's one thing to be sexually betrayed, but then to be made felt crazy because the addict is figuring out a way to make it look like they're not acting out. And the the partner is seeing something that really isn't there. Um, it's it's a whole other layer of betrayal, is it not? Oh, it's just horrible when the person, uh, the partner will come in and they feel like they're the cause of why this addiction is or they're the cause that their their spouse is unhappy. And it, it's just heartbreaking on the therapist's side to see what kind of trauma can be perpetrated on another person. It, it's very sad to watch. So what do you think? Do you like the book, Intimacy Anorexia? Absolutely. I think it's very eye-opening for the uh, anorexic and the partner. I don't think they either one of them really know what's going on, why they're doing this, until they read the material and, and realize this is not acceptable. No, I would agree. I would agree, too, and certainly, like you said, um, intimacy is is the antidote for addiction. Uh, You pointed it out earlier when you called it community, and that community, that intimacy in the community can be in fellowship. It can be in partnership with your wife or husband. Um, Mm -hmm. But intimacy is really about being vulnerable and being honest, authentic, and transparent, and that's what we were always asking our addicts to do. And it's a lot harder than it looks when you've spent a lifetime being deceptive. That's exactly right. And so many people think that intimacy only means sexual, and that's not it at all. It's emotional, it's spiritual, it's financial. It's Every aspect is shared with your partner. Well, it sounds like you really have made it your own to devote yourself to the many different practices that can help couples find closeness and find hope and create vision and dreams. And I'm wondering, on your website, do you have any tools or resources for the for the partner or the addict? I hate to admit it, but I've been in in working on this dissertation and all kinds of things for so long, I have not updated my website. So it's it's a little antiquated. But I hope to get on the website on my website and start getting things on there because I do have some some good ideas and tips. And, and um, you know, one of the best things that have come out of the, my practice in the last years is a fair fighting contract. And what the couple does is put together rules of what they're going to remember when it looks like they're about to have a a, a blowdown, <laughs> and that is to remember right. that they're both that they're on the same side, that they're a team. To remember that this is another person made in the image of God, that they're talking to someone that is respected and well, truly loved. And there's just a list of of ten, twelve things that they're to remember before they get into a fight. And usually by the time they get done reading their fair fighting contract, the fight's over. 
Well, I like that. And where can they find that contract? Well, like I said, I'll get that up on my website here just in the next couple of days, but uh, I'll definitely put that on my website, clhutchison.com. Okay. Well, I'll look forward to taking a look at that, too, because let's face it, it is so difficult when there's so much tension, there's been so much betrayal, and anger is heightened. And so fair fighting is very, very important for couples to know. I, I can remember that one of the one of the fair fighting rules is to really express things for yourself and not pull anybody else into the conversation. Yes. So to say, even your brother thinks this or even Mary Jane thinks you're this. You know, you yes. can't really fight somebody who's not in the room with you. You can't disagree with them. So That's exactly right. I get it. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing this research. I look forward to hearing more about the follow-up. And, um, you know, what we know is that when we make couples healthier, we stop the generational sex addiction that can occur for years to come. So it's so nice that you have done some research on people when they've gotten healthy, but they could be healthier. Absolutely, and thank you so much for having me on the program. Oh, I so appreciate you coming on and keep us posted, okay? I sure will. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. Have a good one. Again, that was Christian Hutchinson, and she has made it her mission to help couples to really do a good job of taking their lives to the next level and making a difference both for themselves and in the coupleship. And that is, that's when we know we've done our job. And that's when the healing can really occur. And so I am just so happy to have had her on the show. You know, she did the research to find out what therapy would work the best for couples who suffer from sexual addiction. Again, it's not something you'd want to do in the crisis stage in the discovery stage, but when you've been working a while with your counselor, maybe you've gone to um, RCA, Recovery Couples Anonymous, or maybe you've done some work with a therapist, and it's, you know, you're not doing badly, but it doesn't seem like you're getting any better. When that occurs, it's super important to find therapists and to find um, modalities that can take your life to the next level. And I'm going to give you a skill tonight before we end. I want you to, the next, well, you know, probably many of you do do check-ins or as Doug Weiss calls, dailies. And I do not work with couples on the couch looking at me. I ask them to sit in chairs face-to-face and knees-to-knees. And when they're sitting there and they are that close and they're looking at the left window, well, the left eye, the window of the soul, there's much more likelihood that there'll be connection. It is a super easy way to make a difference in your relationship. So find a couple of chairs, face them together, sit knees to knees, look in each other's eyes, and share your true feelings. That's my tip for the day. 
And I'm going to tell you a little secret. I submitted my empathy book to the publisher, and um, they're working on it right now. And so hopefully in the beginning of the year, we'll have Help Her Heal, a workbook for sex addicts to develop empathy with their partners. I'll keep you posted. You know I will. I'll let you know when that book comes out. I'm super excited. All right. As I say at the end of every show, there will always and only be one of you at all times. I want you fearlessly to have the courage yourself and have the courage to be yourself. I'm Carol Jurgensen-Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach. And for more information, you can reach me at www.sexhelpwithcarolthecoach. And don't forget to listen to my partner radio show, Thursday afternoons at 2 o'clock, Betrayal Recovery Radio, right here on Blog Talk, the show that's specifically for partners. Hey, make it a great day, and we'll see you for more help next week.